2 Peter. So you can go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, and it is the end of 2 Peter. Now, some of you, you've been here with us through all of it. You've seen five different sermons now on this book. Last one, we're all the way through. You finished a whole book of the Bible. Congratulations. Well done. I, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope it's been a blessing to you just to see God's Word through a section of Scripture and how God's Word is all connected throughout these books of the Bible. Last week, as a congregation, we saw how Jesus in his second coming is certain to return. He will come back again, and we don't know when that will be, but as believers, we can put our full trust in the fact that he will come back. Now today, building upon that, the question that we're going to seek to answer is how should we then be living as we wait on the coming of the Lord? If he will come back, what makes our daily lives different as Christians than those who ignore the reality of Jesus' second coming around us, than our neighbors who ignore Jesus? So let me ask you this as we get started. Is there a distinctly Christian way of living? What do you think? I'm going to propose that there is. There's a very distinctly Christian way of living. And we're going to begin to look at many elements of what that is today. And there's far more than what we'll just see today. This is just part of it. But we're going to look at what it means to live as Christians in light of his impending return. What we must be, the culture we must create. So read with me today our passage, 2 Peter 3.11 through the end of the chapter today. Verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight, at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters, and there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And you recognize that last part, right? That's been our benediction, sort of a benediction, for the last five weeks. But the first thing we see here, and I just want to briefly touch on this before we get into the meat, is that This is all done in the context, everything we're talking about today is in the context of the heaven and the earth being remade when Jesus returns. And so we'll look at those elements of Christian living, but at the time of his second coming, right, Jesus comes and he issues judgment against sin. His first coming is to save his people out of sin, but the second coming is to issue the judgment upon sin for those who reject him. And Peter explained to us in in great detail the false teachers, 
those who reject Jesus will be judged. But the focus here in these couple of verses we read seems to be on the recreation, on the fact that God will not just judge, but he will recreate the earth, specifically that destruction and rebuild of the heavens and the earth through fire. And this new creation that he's talking about here, this is a renovated material world. It'll succeed the present earthly order. And we don't know exactly what that looks like. We can only speculate, but we do know that God will renovate it. He will purify it. He will renew it. He will refashion the world as he wants it in a way that is better than it currently is. We know that for sure. And we know that those who trust in Jesus will dwell therein on that earth, that new heaven, that new earth with him bodily. And that is a blessing to each of us. And so this new heavens and new earth, it's new in chronological time, but it's new in other ways as well. It'll be new in character. For instance, a place, a place where righteousness dwells, where righteousness inhabits. Is that you didn't like my friend? It's because, it's because I have water on it. Thank you, Daryl. I appreciate it. It's because my water is, uh, is pushing it down. Thank you, though. Um, so it's a place, right? This new heavens and new earth. Guys, it's not just new chronologically. It's new because righteousness dwells on this earth. And this is not an earth here now where righteousness dwells, right? This is not the place where um, we would say this is a righteous place. But that will be the case when Jesus returns, when he remakes the earth in that way. There will be no evil, no sin. And this is not because we're all great people. But this is because the righteousness of Jesus has been given to each one of us who followed him, who will dwell there with him. So, now, in light of that, that kind of sets the stage, right? New heavens, new earth, we will be there as Christians. But then the question becomes, if our future is secure, if our future is stable and comforting, thanks to Jesus, how then should we live today? What impact does that have for today? So our central truth, the big picture today, I want you to understand, is that in light of Jesus' return, Christians are called to live a distinct, distinct and God-glorifying lifestyle. Distinct, different from the world around us. While we wait, we are a set-apart, unique people. Titus 2, 11-13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people instructing us to deny godlessness, to deny worldly lusts, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how we are to live. That's the core of the calling today, is to live in this way. So let's begin now to consider this. Let's look at some different elements of this Christian lifestyle. How then should we live until Jesus returns and remakes everything? What should we be doing in the meantime? What are some areas we should focus on, things we should do? Because too often Christians just kind of blend in. We don't do as that scripture says. We blend in with the culture around us and we look kind of just like everyone else. When some of you guys were younger, I don't know if these books are popular anymore, but if you were about my age, When you were younger, did you ever read the Where's Waldo books? And some of you read them. Some of you, Eric's like, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they weren't as popular if you were a little older, a little younger. Did you guys ever have Where's Waldo? Or was he, you had him? Okay. You remember Waldo? Okay. He's a nice, yeah, he's a nice guy. But the problem with Waldo is you'd have this big old setup, right, of this big picture of a million different people at the beach or something, and you had to find Waldo 
in the picture. You had to find him, and he blended in with everyone, right? The whole scene around him kind of looked just like him. He wore like this little red and white outfit, but he looked just like everyone else. And so it took forever to find Waldo, which was kind of the goal of the book, right? It wouldn't be any fun if you found him in five seconds. But Waldo looked exactly like everyone else. And unless you were an eagle eye, it took forever to go, oh, there's Waldo. You know, you'd finally find him eventually. But as Christians, it can't take, it shouldn't take forever for us to look different than the world, right? We should be able to be picked out quickly and simply and easily. And so if we as Christians want to look different, if we want to counter the culture that is around us, the the non-Christian pagan culture, we first, as Christians, need to have a culture. Does that make sense? If we're going to live differently and distinctly, we need to have a Christian way of living, a Christian culture. And so what we're going to do now, spend most of this time looking at then, okay, how does Jesus call us to live? What are elements of the Christian culture that we need to experience and be a part of and live out in our daily lives? That is the question here today. And I'm going to list a lot of these. It looks like a lot because there's nine, but I promise I'm going to go kind of quick. And some of them we've dealt with in previous weeks, so I'll really just breeze through those. What I would suggest, by the way, in your notes, write, write down the main idea and maybe one supporting thing, but I won't spend a ton of time on these. I just want to give you a broad overview of what does it look like to build a Christian culture, to live differently. Okay, the first thing that Peter puts out for us here in verse 11 is that we as Christians are to have holy conduct and godliness. Verse 11, he says, Since all these things are to be dissolved, that's talking about the world, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and in godliness. And essentially, that's that catechism question today. That's the one we read. How can you glorify God? By loving him and by doing what he commands. And these two things are inevitably tied together. You can't really have one without the other. You need both. Holy conduct is our external actions. It's the things that we do. It's the external behaviors that Jesus commands of us. But then godliness is the internal heart attitude that God changes within us. He changes us to love his commands. So let's think about each of these individually, okay? Holy conduct is good, Because it's necessary to honor God, to bring him glory. If we're going to glorify God, we follow his commands, we stand out from the world. And what is holy conduct? Well, for Christians, it's found all throughout Scripture, but the easiest, most succinct list, if you want to just think of it, this is holy conduct, is probably the Ten Commandments. You read those Ten Commandments, and that is what it looks like to live a holy Christian life. Jesus says, you will have no other gods before me. You will not make any gods in an engraven image, right? Carved images. You'll not make idols. You'll not uh, take the name of the Lord in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath day and you'll keep it holy. You'll honor your father and mother. You won't commit murder. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't bear false witness. You won't covet. That's the summary of God's commands and what it means to live a holy lifestyle, to live with holy conduct. And I think if we're doing that consistently, it's going to do two things. If we live that way, it's going to honor God. It's going to glorify God. And it's also going to draw some attention from outsiders, especially as our culture changes and we look more and more different day by day. Think about this. What if people looked at your conduct and they go, man, you know, the Christians, look at how honest all the Christians are when I do business with them. They are such honest 
upstanding businessmen. I love doing business with the Christians, even though I'm not a Christian, because they're so stinking honest. What if people said that? Or what if they go, wow, look at those Christians. They have a super high view of marriage. You know, I, I've never really considered marriage as something all that valuable, but all these Christians, they just have one wife, one husband for life, and they actually love each other. Like, that's weird. But, like, what if we actually had that culture, right? And we do to some degree. But what if we were, like, building into that, that holy living, that we take these commands and we live them out and we build something that is completely different from the world around us? I think it would make an impact, and I think it would... First and foremost, glorify God. That's actually the most important. But then too, I think people will notice that. And they'll continue to notice it more and more as as culture changes. And as the values that we have are devalued by the culture, if that makes sense. However, here's here's the kicker. Holy conduct in and of itself is not good enough. It's not what we're going for. Godliness, this other half, is actually probably even more important. Because holy conduct is in vain if, if the godliness isn't accompanying it. And what I mean by that is this idea of godliness. This is our heart being changed to love the Lord more and more over time. This is an internal thing that's happening. The holy commands are the external, but internally, what's our heart actually thinking and doing? Because if we see these commands God's given us and we follow them begrudgingly, or if we only follow the commands to look good, that's kind of what the Pharisees were doing in Scripture. They just followed the commands to look good, well, then we followed in vain. And so the two questions we need to ask ourselves here are, number one, am I following God's commands more than I used to by the grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit? But then second, am I following God's commands because I love him and to bring him honor and glory? Or am I following God's commands for some other motive? Is there some other reason? Do I want the attention from being a good person? Is that why we're doing it? So are our motives correct? Colossians 1.10 says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. And that is our hope. That is our prayer for each one of us. And so this idea holy, holiness, godliness, that's the first element of the Christian culture. And it starts with each one of you individually, and then together as a church, and then with all the churches of Christ around the country and around the world, and it blossoms out, and the kingdom of God grows and expands, and we are known as a different people. So that's number one, holy conduct and godliness. But then number two, what else does it look like to build this Christian culture? Well, how about a joyful eternal perspective? Not just an eternal perspective, but a joyful one. Because you've got the second coming of Jesus, right? He comes again. And that thought brings us joy by extension because if we're waiting for the day of God, verse 12 there, and if we're trusting in God's promises, verse 13, then we should be the most joyful people around. And joy is different than just happiness. But we should be joyful and thankful as Christians. And it's so good to see that growing and cultivating in so many of you. Because pagan culture looks for immediate highs. They look for the things that supposedly make you happy today, right? It's the quick high, uh, the splurging dollars on the, on the latest toy, for instance, because it seems like that's what will make you happy. But they do that because they have no eternal perspective. 
They either don't know what happens after death or they think nothing happens after death. And so it's all about the here and the now and their joy is false joy and their joy is a fleeting joy. And so they don't conceive of this the way you conceive of this as a Christian. We as Christians can think of things differently. We can have this long-term eternal perspective. We can have hope for the future, knowing that Jesus will return, knowing that Jesus will recreate the earth, and knowing that we are eternally secure with him. Without pain, without sorrow, without any of these things. And so we can rest easy. We can take it slow, not needing the quick high. We can move at kind of the plodding pace, right? We can just kind of move along with an end goal in mind at a plodding pace. How many of you guys liked to play with Legos when you were kids, right? A lot, especially the guys. Some of the girls too, but especially guys, right? Every guy, if you were a guy and you didn't play with Legos as a kid, that's kind of strange, right? Because men like to build, boys like to build, and ladies, you do too. But men especially, you like to build. It's just in your nature. And what can we do as Christians? Well, we can build the things of God. And we do that slowly, patiently, joyfully over time. We build Christian churches. We build Christian businesses. We build Christian schools. We have Christian offspring. We make Christian disciples of them and of others. And so it's having this eternal perspective, long-term perspective, that's also joyful and thankful. Man, and I'll tell you, okay, so this week, right, Daryl's coming up here fixing my stand, right? Because it's fallen over. Because I got this water bottle up here. Because this week, I really did not have a voice for two or three days. I lost my voice Sunday afternoon, and it was gone on Monday, right? It was gone Monday, Tuesday. I got some medication, and by Wednesday, it was starting to come back. And so I just had a brutal, brutal week um, just being under the weather, and just not having a voice. It's so weird, right? Um, But despite all that, what I had to do, I had to step back and think about, okay, this was a weird week. But then I had to repent, and I had to remind myself that even in the course of things happening that I wish didn't happen, Jesus walks with us, and he gives us joy in what we have. And what a joy it was when my voice actually came back. (laughs) You know, that was nice. I was a little worried. Um, And it's not fully back. You can still tell, obviously. But, But what a joy it is to just be with God and relish the things he has given us in this life. And so as Christians, I want to encourage you in that, to be joyful and to be thankful for what you've had. Because some of you have probably had worse weeks than that. But even in those bad weeks and bad days, We can look forward to the day of God, knowing that he will return, knowing that we have nothing to fear, and we can live as happy people. And so that's kind of the call that I think we as Christians need to do, is we need to be the most joyful, the most content people around, even when we don't feel like it. We just have to ask God for that joy. And so two questions I want to give you to end on this thought. First, is God calling you to build something that will have an eternal impact for him? What is God calling you to build for him? Like all you men who like to build with your little Legos, right? Or maybe you've grown out of that, but now you can build something eternal for God. But then second, what you're building, what you're doing in daily life, are you doing it more joyfully than the pagans next door? Because they don't really have any reason for eternal joy, but you do. So a joyful, eternal perspective, that's part of our culture. That's part of who God calls us to be. 
The third thing here, without spot or blemish. Look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort that is waiting, he's waiting for the return of Christ, okay? Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. So this is meant to provide a direct contrast to the false teachers. Now, some of you might not remember, this was two or three weeks ago. Peter described the false teachers as spots and blemishes. But now he's saying, you Christians make every effort to be found without spots and blemishes. And so like the holy conduct and godliness we talked about, this could be another reference to Christian character, to the kind of godly lives we're supposed to live. But I want to take a different tact on it. And I want to say this could also be a reference to how Christians are to be viewed in the sight of God. Because although believers are never perfect, believers are never sinless, we're still viewed as perfect and viewed as sinless by God because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. His perfect, sinless life has been placed in front of us. And so we are viewed that way. We are viewed without spot and without blemish in the sight of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom for God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And so we're viewed as sinless in the sight of God. And among Christians, what impact then does that need to have on our culture, on our thought process? We have to develop an understanding of who each of us are, that each of us are, yes, flawed and sinful, but we must extend grace to each other. We must extend forgiveness to each other as Jesus has forgiven us. And we do this knowing that despite our individual sins, God has granted us grace. And if God granted you grace, then we can grant grace to each other. And so that's part of our culture is to grant grace, to love, encourage one another. Because he's given each of this, each of us believers, if you are a believer, the righteousness of Jesus, so that you are seen without spot and blemish. In his sight, you're seen as as perfect, as godly, as holy, when really you are not. But to be seen without spot and blemish, then what's it mean? It means that we are to know that we have salvation. And we are to test that we are really Christians and not imposters. We're to know that we're true believers in his sight. So how do we live in light of Jesus' return? We test ourselves. And we have to be sure that God has us as part of his people. We can't just trust that we're automatically Christians because we were born into a family with other Christians. We have to know that Jesus has indeed called us and given us that element of where he stands in our place, and we are without spot or blemish. So that's number three. Furthermore, continuing on here, number four, we are at peace. We are Christians at peace. Okay? Some of these are starting to sound like Advent, right? Joy and peace. We talked about all these things back in December. But this is a trait here, and you look there right at the end of verse 14. This is the next defining trait of Christian culture as we wait on Jesus, is that we're at peace. And he says it very plainly there. Now, I think we can have two different forms of peace here, though. The first is internal peace. Again, we're talking internally here. So we have an internal peace. This is the true peace of mind that accompanies the confident faith in the Lord Jesus. This is the kind of peace that ends earthly worrying. And honestly, as I think about us as Christians, this is one area where I think the average Christian, we all need to improve. And I say this myself included, because I detect massive amounts of worry and lack of peace from most Christians. Now, 
I know what some of you are thinking. You're, you're probably sitting there going, well, don't we have lots of bad things happening around us? I mean, don't we live in a culture that's basically collapsing upon itself under the weight of sin? Don't we have clowns running things? And don't we have foolish thought reigning in the public discourse? I mean, don't we have all this silliness around us? Isn't it kind of obvious, Kyle, that as a nation we've chosen, we want to be under God's judgment? Shouldn't all this bad news cause us to worry a little bit? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you thought about that. Because my answer is no. I don't think any of that should cause us to worry. And, and, and Now, I say that in all seriousness. I, I don't think the bad news shouldn't, shouldn't you know, be something we look at. I think we need to know what's going around us in the world. We need to know what's happening. But what I mean is we don't need to constantly complain. We don't need because we're just known as the happy, content people. What if we know that, that Jesus is returning, and in light of that, we are secure in him, and we are happy, and we are content, and we are at peace? What if instead of complaining, we took our concerns to God in prayer? And then, what if we left our concerns with God in prayer? What if we put it before his feet and we left with the peace that he gives us from that? And maybe it's not the national state of affairs. Maybe it's not the culture that that worries you. Maybe you're thinking about something completely different. There's something totally different in your life that's giving you anxiety, that's giving you worry. But the answer is the same. We need peace within us, and we need to pray for that peace within us. We need to ask God to give us his peace that he, only he can give. It surpasses understanding. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I believe that is the solution. Take it to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6-7. That is the answer. That is how we get peace. That is how we live as a happy content, peaceful people. And I hope that is the way our our culture would be described, is they are Christians, they are happy, content people. But then the other way I want you to think about peace, it's not just that internal peace that you have within yourselves. It's peace with God. And as believers, you should have that. Because having a true saving relationship with God, by extension, means you are at peace with him. Because we're naturally born sinners, we're naturally separated from God. You could say you're estranged from God at birth. However, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not turned to God, then today you have no peace with God. Right? So Christian can have that peace. Non-Christian, if you're here thinking, should I follow Jesus? Well, you're never going to have complete peace because you're never going to have peace with God. You have to end your war against God. You have to accept that beautiful peace treaty that he offers you. You have to put your trust in Jesus alone. That's it. It's that simple. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only way you have peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from that, the war continues, and you won't have that peace with God, and you won't have the internal peace either, by the way, as an extension of that. But maybe, you guys, you, most of you are Christians, and you just need to be reminded that you have peace with God. You just need to be reminded of that truth and relish in it and take some joy in that today. So as we live this week, as Christians, let's make it our aim 
to be known as a content people, a peaceful people who have an inner calmness and also a peace with God. Okay? Number five, and some of these I'm going to breeze through a little quicker here because we already talked about them. Number five, I'm going to breeze through because we're going to talk about it next week. All right, so this is sharing Jesus. Verse 15, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. What on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Last week we talked about this idea in the context of why the Lord Jesus may be slow or patient in his second coming. We don't know when that would be. Verse 9, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but it could seem like a really long time. And why is Jesus so slow in our way of thinking? Because he's patient in salvation. He's drawing people into his kingdom. He's using that time to bring your friends, your neighbors to salvation. And we know from personal experience, it often takes us a long time to respond to Jesus. And so waiting eagerly for Jesus's return, it does not mean we detach ourselves from our responsibilities in the present. In the current time period, It is ripe. The harvest is ripe for you to go, for us to go as Christians and share Jesus. And so that is part of our culture, that we go and we share Jesus. We have to regard this patience of the Lord, as Peter keeps describing it here, as an opportunity for salvation. Jesus waits so that people will be saved, and he's commissioned you to go and speak, to be his instrument, to bring people to salvation. And again, we're going to go more into depth on this next week. But it's our joy and it's our privilege to introduce our friends and family to Jesus. And what I want you to encourage you to think about now is something I've been hinting at for a couple weeks. And that's begin praying for one person. You can pray for more than one person too. But at least one. One person you know who's far from God. Who's one friend, family member, neighbor, co-worker that is far from God, that you know that God has put you in their life. He hasn't put me in their life. He's put you in their life, and God is laying them on your heart, and you have a burden for them. Who's someone you have a level of influence with that you can share Jesus? Number six, we are called as Christians and part of our, as part of our knowing God to learn the scriptures. Now, we've talked repeatedly about this one throughout our series, and I think this is kind of one of the big themes of this whole book. So I won't belabor the point here. But I do want you to note, verse 16, he says he speaks about these things in all his letters. They're talking about Paul. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do the rest of scriptures. So I want you to think about this. He said there, there's some things in scripture that are hard to understand. I mean, that's true. If you've read the Bible, you know that. There's some things that are hard to understand. Well, do you know, what, what is a theologian? What's a theologian? How do, we, how do we use that word? How do we define that word? A theologian is just someone who's versed in Bible knowledge. They just know the scriptures. But to be a Christian means you are called to be a theologian. You are called to be versed in Bible knowledge. You master the scriptures for your self-benefit of knowing God better, to refute the false teachers, and to disciple newer Christians. And that's one reason, again, we have that catechism up there, right? We want to disciple you by knowing the scriptures better. And so each week we learn a doctrine, we talk about it. Now here's another important aspect to this verse. This is just kind of cool. I want you to see this, all right? Apologetically, I think this is interesting. Peter is talking about how it's important to properly understand Paul's writings. One apostle, he's talking about another apostle, and he's talking about the letters Paul wrote, right? And Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 
Adiata, Corinthians, name them all, right? Paul wrote all those books. And Paul, excuse me, Peter here is saying, well, guys, unstable people are twisting Paul's writings. They're not interpreting them correctly. And he's saying they're twisting them and interpreting them wrongly as they also do with the rest of scriptures. What is Peter saying about Paul's letters? Bingo. Is that not amazing? You've got Peter saying Paul's letters are part of scripture. And Paul might still be alive, most likely, when he's saying this. And he's saying, hey, you read the book of Genesis? Well, that letter Paul wrote you is scripture too. Is that not amazing? Does that not kind of blow your mind? They're alive at the same time. And he's saying, you guys heard these letters. Those are scripture too. So think about that apologetically next time someone tells you that people just kind of threw the Bible together randomly. It's like, no, you've got a guy who was alive with another guy saying, remember, he wrote scripture. That determination of what is scripture wasn't done hundreds of years later. So learn the scripture, know the scripture. That's part of our culture. We dig into the Bible. We read the Bible together. And I know some of you are on those awesome Bible reading plans, and I want to encourage you to to keep on those. Number seven, guard against false teaching. Uh, Verse 17, you saw that. And this is the other area we've already spoken about at great length. And the key for you here is to know that false teachers exist. They exist within the church structure even, which is frightening, but you have to be able to address and refute them. And that comes by learning the scripture. And as we're about to see, growing in his grace and knowledge. And that's number eight. And this is one I want to think about a little more. As Christians, we're called to grow in Jesus. We're called to know him better. Verse 18, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I I think this verse, and the reason we've used it as our benediction for the last six weeks Because I think this verse, more than anything, sums up what Peter is trying to get across. This is the idea. It means to grow, to advance, to increase in certain areas. And there's two areas we're told to grow in. The first is grace. It says grow in grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned favor. It's what you didn't deserve, but God gave to you. And Peter is saying he wants Christians to grow in this, to grow in their understanding of what it means to be saved by grace rather than being saved by your own merit, by your own doing. Because we naturally want to work, we naturally want to achieve high honors, and then we want to feel like we should be rewarded based on that, based on what I did. But he's saying, no, grow in grace because it's the free gift of salvation that God gives us, and it's not at all based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus did for us. And so I believe that part of growing in God's grace is understanding that, but then it's also resting in God's grace. Yeah, there's all these things we can, we can do. We can build for God's kingdom, but it means we're not trying to earn favor with God. We're just resting in him. We're enjoying him. We're thankful for what he does for us. 2 Corinthians 12.9 But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's saying, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses, not about the things I accomplished. And Paul accomplished a lot as a leader in in Jewish religious life. But that's not what he's boasting about. He's boasting about Jesus. 
and what Jesus did in him. So what if our Christian culture, if we're going to continue calling it that, what if our culture is shaped by a growing understanding that we need the gracious salvation of Jesus, that it's not about us, it's about him? What if we are the kind of people who boast in our weaknesses and boast in our need for Jesus rather than in our own greatness? Because it's just your nature and it's just my nature to want to boast in our greatness. But we need to stop doing that. We need to boast in Jesus And we need to not try to earn favor with God. We need to just love him and accept the kindness, the salvation that he's given us. So what if we were just more honest about that, about the need to know Jesus every day, the need to rest in him, rest in his grace? He's called us to it, to grow in Jesus in this way. But then the second half of this growing in Jesus, he said, it's not just to grow in grace, but he says it's to grow in knowledge to grow in our knowledge of him, of Jesus, of who he is, of our great God and Savior. And so as our knowledge and as our maturity increases, and hopefully you can see that in your own life, you can look back and see your knowledge of Jesus, your maturity in Jesus is increasing as you get older. We cherish God more, as well as we fight back the spiritual deceptions and the false teachers and all those kind of things that are coming after us. 1 Peter 2.2, he says, Like newborn infants... Desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Now, he's not saying to have the maturity of an infant. No. What he's saying here is rather to desire the word of God the way an infant desires milk, right? The mother's milk. He's saying that is the way we are to look at God's word. We are to want God's word the way that infant wants milk as nourishment, as food. And so you grow into your fullness of salvation by a greater walk with the Lord day by day. This happens slowly, ploddingly. We pace ourselves over time. We grow in God's knowledge. And your knowledge of God is the backbone then of your relationship with God. We need that knowledge in order that we might have a stronger relationship with him. So for us as a church, are you ready to grow in grace and to grow in knowledge? Now, I looked up a few statistics because I think this knowledge element is very important. So I looked up, there's this survey called the Ligonier State of Theology Survey, and this is self-described evangelicals. So as we're talking about knowledge, all right, Bible knowledge is lacking. They do this survey of evangelicals, and I don't know exactly, I think it's just self-described. It's people who say, yeah, I'm an evangelical Christian. So take that for what it's worth. But They do this survey of theology, of knowledge about God. They say, how well do you Christians actually know what your Bible says about God? Well, one of the questions was, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And 48% of self-described evangelicals agreed. So half of evangelical Christians said that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. There's this doctrine called immutability. Right? It's the idea that God doesn't change and God doesn't adapt, but half of just Christians didn't know that. And if you didn't, I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on you. I'm just saying that is an example of how we as Christians are not knowledgeable. We have failed in the knowledge of God. Then another question, it says, God accepts the worship of all religions. And again, about half of so-called evangelicals agreed with that. That's craziness, right? The Bible is very clear on that. But again, this data... This is sobering, but it requires repentance on all our parts. 
It requires repentance from, from pastors. Why? Because better preaching is needed. We need to talk about these things. We need to stop preaching sermons on sex, and we need to get into what the Bible actually says. I'm using that as a joke, right? Because you see these churches sometimes, they do like 20 weeks on sex or relationships. Well, we need to get into the meat, right? We need to get into the meat and potatoes of what is God's word. And so as pastors, we've failed you. We need to repent of that. But then as congregants, as just individual Christians in your walk with God, more scripture reading is needed. I mean, you've got to read the Bible, and you've got to be at church and have that attendance. And so through these things, you're learning. And now when those questions come up, it's not a struggle to answer, and half of us don't get them wrong. And so what if, what if we as Christians, part of our distinct Christian culture was that we really know the Bible better? And because we know the Bible better, we can walk with God closer. I don't know how on earth you walk with God and pray to God if you think that God changes. I don't get, there's a huge disconnect there. But half of Christians think that. What's going on? That's so, I don't know how it happens. And so the knowledge must come first, but then the relationship has got to build off of that. So we've got to be committed to that, guys. As a church, we grow in Jesus. We're no longer Theological infants, sure, when we come to faith we are, but we grow and we mature in God's grace and his love for us and our love for one another and in our knowledge of him. The last one now, here's how we bring it all back together. We glorify God. That's why we're here. We glorify God. And the last element of Christian living is this, and it's last for a reason. It's because that's the purpose. We exist to worship God and we exist to glorify him. And so I think that's why Peter throws it in here as the last thing. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And this is what we do together. This, when we get together here on a Sunday morning, we glorify God. But this is also what we do throughout the week when we separate. It doesn't end when you walk out the doors. Your life is to bring glory and honor to God. That's our purpose. We seek to magnify him above all else. In Latin, I love this phrase. It's called soli Deo Gloria. You've heard that phrase? Solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's the idea here. We live to the glory of God alone because everything is about promoting God. It's not about promoting ourselves. And so let the challenge today for you be to focus everything you're doing on Jesus because the story, ultimately at the end of the day, it's about what he does. It's not about what you do. It's not about what I do. It's not about even what we accomplish for him, although we should. It's about what he does. And so are we glorifying him in our life, in our struggles, in our day-to-day walk with him? What can you do to point yourself toward God today? That is the question that I want you to end with and think about. How can you change something to point yourself toward God? All right, our call to response in, in light of all of this. This is a lot to take in. There's no way you'll probably remember all these, but I'm hoping you remember one or two. Your call to response today is to alter your lifestyle. Change it. Alter your lifestyle in order to know and to be more like Jesus. Because remember, church, what set this all up? It's because he will return and he will return in glory. And if we think through these elements of Christian living, I'm sure there's a few that are going to strike you. This is somewhere I need to change. 
holy conduct and godliness, having a joyful eternal perspective, being found without spot and blemish, being at peace, sharing Jesus, learning the scriptures, guarding your heart against false teaching, growing in Jesus, seeking to glorify God in all of life. I don't know the answer for you guys, but I want to ask you, where is the Holy Spirit seeking to make changes in your life? He's called us to be a set-apart people and a different people. And there's, a, there's definitely room for improvement in my life and I think in yours. And so how do we do that today? Where do we need to call on the Holy Spirit? He will change us if we ask him. And so let's go before God in prayer now and let's ask him, Lord, work in us that until you come again, work in me and make me into the kind of person you have called me to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us salvation through your son, Jesus that you have given us so much more than we ever deserved. And that, Lord, what we could even ask for, more than we could even ask for. But, Lord, in light of this passage today, uh, Lord, we repent of our sin. We repent of where we have ignored you. And, Lord, we repent of the fact that we have so often sought to glorify ourselves instead of you. Uh, Lord, we, we know that it's easy to look to ourselves and to look to our own power and our own strength, but we confess that we have none in true, in true eternity. Uh, Lord, it's all about you. And so as we come before you now in prayer, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would change us, mold us and shape us into the people you've called us to be, that we would live different, that we would set the example for our friends and neighbors, that we would be a distinct people here on this earth from now until the day you come, and that we would do so joyfully, and thankfully, with praise in our hearts and minds. And so may we sing that out now to you. In Jesus' name, amen.